Hello and welcome to Off Campus History. I'm your host, Lewis Reedwood. On today's episode, we're discussing teaching history through board games with a particular focus on the 2013 game Lewis and Clark The Expedition. Lewis and Clark is a board game based on, you guessed it, the Lewis and Clark Expedition of 1804 to 1806 that was sent by U.S. President Thomas Jefferson to explore the Louisiana Territory, which the United States had purchased from France in 1803. The game sees players race each other to be the first to complete the trek from St. Louis to the Pacific Coast. Players will rely on extracting labor from and trading goods with indigenous people in order to make their journeys. Thus, the game is an important depiction of relations between indigenous people and Euro-Americans in the North American West. To discuss the game with me, I'm joined by Professor Benjamin Hoy. Benjamin is an associate professor of history at the University of Saskatchewan, whose research focuses on indigenous people's relationships to the creation and enforcement of the Canada-U.S. border. His 2021 book, A Line of Blood and Dirt, Creating the Canada-United States Border Across Indigenous Lands, won a wide array of prizes, including the Canadian Historical Association's Best Book Prize. For non-historians who may not be aware, this is probably the most prestigious award I can think of for a historian in Canada, so his book is really good. Benjamin also researches the history of how Indigenous people have been represented in popular board games, and he's an advocate for using games to teach history in classroom settings. As we get into in the episode, he's even designed his own historical board game. Today we dig into the history behind the Lewis and Clark board game and discuss historical board games more generally. How do board games teach history differently than other media like print or film? How have depictions of indigenous people in board games changed over time? How does the game depict relations between indigenous people and the Lewis and Clark expedition? And how does that compare to the historical reality? As we note in the episode, the game draws upon some tired and offensive stereotypes of indigenous people. Why do games continue to include these? And what advice does Benjamin have for educators who want to use board games to teach history? We've got a great episode for you today, so let's get into it. All right, I'd like to welcome to the podcast Benjamin Hoy, Associate Professor of History at the University of Saskatchewan. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. I know you originally because I took a class from you during my undergraduate degree at the University of Saskatchewan, where, among other things, we played a board game that you had created yourself. So I know that board games are a, are a subject of interest for you. Yeah. So I, um, as weird as it sounds, I, to my parents' everlasting shame, I never liked reading, which is kind of weird to end up as a historian, especially professionally in a job that you spend all of your day reading. Mm-hmm. But I actually got into history as a young kid playing video games of all things. So that's sort of where I fell in love with history was playing old computer games like Age of Empires and Civilization. And a lot of those sort of, some of those games are still played today. Age of Empires 2, for example, has just been played for the last 15 uh, years or so. And so that's sort of how I fell in love with history. And so when I started teaching, I, I wanted to sort of take an opportunity and incorporate some of the things that I fell in love with into the classroom. So the game that you played, which was called Policing the Sound, was my first attempt at bringing games and history together. I remember it was a it was a really engaging exercise to do in class. I think students really, and I've talked to other students who've taken your classes who really like getting to play a, a historical board game in class. We'll talk a little bit more, I think, about your own sort of teaching game, Policing the Sound, toward the end of the podcast. But before we get into that, could you Tell the listeners a little bit about what your research is all about. 
Yeah, so I'm I'm interested in all sorts of things, but my first book, A Line of Blood and Dirt, was about how do you create a border across lands that aren't yours? And so it looks at sort of the creation and formation of the Canada-US border using often indirect means. There's never enough customs agents or Northwest Mounted Police officers, soldiers. There's, there's never enough of them to guard the border. Even today, you can imagine, that, you know, this is a border that's 5,000 miles long. It's prohibitively expensive to put border guards every, you know, 30 feet, you know, even every mile. And so a lot of the sort of early work that's done on the border is controlling the advantages or disadvantages of crossing. So you don't have to guard the border with a border guard if you prevent people from getting gainful employment on the other side of the line. You know, you don't have to control the border if you stop them from visiting family. So if you control what they hope to gain by crossing the border, you can control the border all the same. And so the first book is sort of how you guard a border while having not enough people to do it the way we'd imagine today. So it starts from about 1775 and it goes to the point at which the border sort of becomes an adult, becomes what you'd recognize today, filled with sort of permanent agencies and regular checkpoints and the kind of sort of infrastructure that um, I think Canadians and Americans sort of recognize. So that's sort of the book. And then I just have all sorts of other interests. I'm interested in digital mapping, how you can use computer software to see patterns that are otherwise invisible throughout history. So I'm currently the director of the historical GIS lab at the University of Saskatchewan. So a lot of my work is facilitating people's learning and training and exploration of digital tools to understand the past. Great. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I worked at the historical GIS lab <laughs> when I was an undergraduate student, and it was a great opportunity. And Today we'll be talking about a board game that I think, even though it's even though it's not about the border, has a lot of thematic relationships with some of your research interests in your recent book. Of course, you also have published a couple of articles on historical board games. Mm -hmm. Do you think that games teach history differently than other media, such as you know, print or films or other popular media? And if so, what makes them different? Yeah, this, this is sort of a foundational question. I, I think games are different in a, in a number of distinct ways. So when you read a book or, or even watch a movie, right, they create a world for you, right, either through words or through images, but it's a world that is scripted tightly, right? You know, there's, there's very few, I, don't, I can't think of hardly any professional historians who write choose-your-own-adventure books that are base, built in, you know, like tight historical archival research, right? There, there's no choices to be made in a novel generally. And there's, there's really no choices to be made in a film. But board games are different. Computer games are different. The fundamental world that is being created has your choices embedded in it, right? It takes different branches. And so historical computer games and board games, I think, are able to hit a different kind of learning as a result. One, because you can show counterfactuals in a very sort of clean and easy way. You can explore other possibilities. But two, I think it embeds you into the story in a way that movies and, and novels often struggle to do. Yeah, I think that for a lot of people, the experiential immersion in a particular historical setting is a big part of why they like games, but also why they like living history sites and that sort of thing. And sort of the the idea of imagining what it would be like to 
live during this period in this place, mm-hmm. etc. And I think that games are good at sometimes good at <laughs> <laughs> sometimes good at getting you to think about that, but also think about it in terms of you know what if a game if a game is designed well, what some of your incentives might have been to behave a certain way mm-hmm. or disincentives to behave another way and that sort of thing. Yeah, I think one of the other differences that you're sort of hitting on is games often get less space, which is a really interesting piece. So, you know, my book has about 120,000 words to develop the world and, you know, all of the things that are going into it. You know, unless you're playing really heavy games with people, you've got like a 12-page rule book to create the whole game. Yeah. Right? You know, sometimes like a two-page rule book and a couple pictures and a couple pieces of wood and that's it when we're talking about a board game, a computer game, you know, quite a bit more complicated, but the game has to be simple, right? You have to be able to explain it to other people. Computer games, that's their, their advantages. You can have an ultra complex system that's hidden behind the scenes that does all the calculations, but tabletop games, it's humans doing all those calculations. They have to know what's happening. And so one of the cool aspects, but also the dangers of games is you have to abstract. You have to abstract a really complex historical picture down into a handful of actions or pieces. Mm. And I think the part about that that really interests me for education is it means that people are often quite a bit more blunt about what they think the leading causes of something are. Mm. And that's, I think, another differentiation. You know, when you're writing a novel, you can sort of dance around issues. When you're doing it in a game, I think it's a lot harder to do it. And you can see, especially if you're looking at old games and how they were trying to transmit knowledge to children, you can see how they're doing it. And that's, I think, the, the final main advantage of games is, you know, if, if you're interested in passing knowledge on to younger people, you know, giving them my book is probably a terrible idea. <laughs> if you, you know, you're trying to get a 13 year old and you're like, ah, you know, I want you to read this 300 page long book, you know, and I tried to make it accessible to the public, but it's not the same as, you know, I break out a game yeah. and suddenly I can convey some of those ideas to people who would never have been interested in history and whose age might have precluded them from the kind of deep reading that you'd expect to see coming from a historic monograph. Right. I think that there's also, there's something very different for a lot of people about the experience of doing something as opposed to being told something I, I mm-hmm. and uh, learning that way. And having fun while doing something can, can be very <laughs> powerful as opposed to, you know, a lot of people complain about having being forced to take history classes that they didn't think were very interesting during school. You mentioned old games a moment ago, mm-hmm. and I wanted to ask you about this because you've written about the depiction of indigenous people and indigenous history in board games. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask how, how this has changed over time because indigenous people in board games ha- has a long history, right? But perhaps yeah. as, as long as the sort of mass market board game industry has existed in North America, essentially, or there's a, you know, old games about the old West and that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. So um, how have these depictions changed and how have they remained the same? Yeah. So uh, this is a, a really cool topic. So games as sort of this mass market industry sort of pick up a turn of the, the century. So, you know, in 1890s, 1900s, you start to get advances in lithographs and sort of printing technology that allow you to move from sort of handmade games into these sort of mass market industrial style games where you can hit, you know, a continent with the same game. And certainly by the 1930s, you see Monopoly and, and other games, right, just being spread across 
North America, especially. And, you know, a lot of the companies that you see on the shelves today, Parker Brothers and others, are growing up during this time period. And this is also sort of a really important moment for Western history. So, you know, the 1890s for both Canada and the United States are sort of the one of the lowest points for Indigenous populations, disease, warfare, you know, a whole host of, of challenges have brought their, almost every group to one of its lowest points in, in their histories. And it's also the moment that Canada and the United States no longer are really fighting wars. So it's, it's sort of the, the full transfer of power that you're seeing through colonialism, through violence, is happening at this point. And so no longer are Indigenous nations like the Cree or the Lakota as terrifying to Americans as they once were. And this allows for a lot of romanticization of an old past that appears at the time to be dying out. And you'll see this written in all sorts of things like, you know, Minnesota and Michigan in their constitutions, constitutional debates will include lines like, you know, Indigenous people are just disappearing like leaves before the wind. And so this is the moment at which they're creating these games. And so these games often are romanticizing this sort of colonial process, this violence. And in the games, indigenous people are depicted primarily as one of two things, either sort of the noble savage, um, or sort of peaceful. And that's especially focused in on groups that are appearing in the Great Lakes in the West where the violence, a lot of that has already played out, or as violent and warlike. And that's mostly focused on groups in the West where the violence is still fairly fresh. But most of the time it's it's focused on this sort of violent conflict kind of thing where indigenous people are sort of lurking in the woods and these brave pioneers are going out and fighting them. So this sort of really old school idea about the relationship between indigenous people and settlers. And that, sort of, that slowly changes over time. You get sort of a rise in the 1940s, 1950s and onwards of television and radio where no longer are you doing sort of abstract games, but now it's like the Lone Ranger. So you get like a branding to all of these games. And, and so television especially changes this and sort of now it's about creating games about TV shows that depict indigenous people. So you have this weird mix hmm. of mediums where sometimes it was once a book and then it became a TV show or a radio show. And now it's being abstracted even further into a tabletop game. And then sort of the final piece, sort of the modern games, which changes after the civil, uh, civil rights movement in the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s, games are a little bit slow to adjust, is you get a whitewashing of the history. So the early depictions of games are focused on violent confrontations. The later depictions, a lot of the depictions that we have today are focused on often peace. So one of the sort of classic examples of this is Carcassonne, right? Sort of a, a famous board game. And so there's hundreds of spinoffs, but one of them is called Carcassonne Gold Rush. And if you know anything about the history of the Gold Rush in California, it's a really sad and depressing and violent history. But the box art in that game is an indigenous man reaching his hand down to pull the settlers up into the mountains of gold. And that certainly happens. There's all sorts of cooperation, but you see sort of an almost complete shift from this is a violent confrontation to this is a peaceful confrontation. And in that game, indigenous people are worth a little bit less than horses as a sort of a resource that you collect. There's no, there's nothing much beyond that. So they're sort of fading off into the distance as a sort of peaceful helper. And so I think that's the transition that you see. Neither one of them super good on its own, right? They, they sort of uh, eliminate a lot of the complexity of the history. 
But modern games, I think, tend to underplay the violence and older games really sort of played up that sort of violent confrontation, like the Wild West, which I think you see less often these days. I think with that explanation, the game that we're going to be discussing today seems to really fit into that recent trend very clearly. (laughs) Today, we're talking about the game Lewis and Clark, The Expedition. And for anyone who hasn't played it, I'll give a brief explanation of the narrative and the sort of basic mechanics of the game. So Lewis and Clark, the expedition for anyone who doesn't know is, or isn't familiar with the Lewis and Clark expedition, I guess, which probably most people are, but Lewis and Clark expedition was sent by the American president, Thomas Jefferson in the early 19th century to essentially explore a route to the Pacific ocean from sort of the middle of North America. And this this game imagines that you and your fellow players are, it imagines that Jefferson has sent multiple expeditions to essentially race each other. And whoever gets there first is the winner, whoever gets the credit for quote unquote, discovering the route to the Pacific, etc. So in order to make this journey from St. Louis to the Pacific Ocean, there's essentially two main things that you do. For people who are very familiar with board games, this is a combination of a a deck building game and a worker placement game, where essentially you have indigenous people who you, during the course of the game, collect essentially and place at various places around the board. Uh, In the game, it's referred to as the Indian village. And in doing so, they acquire resources for you, right? So you might put them to work and, and trade some goods and get some, back some canoes, which can then move you further down the rivers of Western North America. The other part of the game is is you play cards to do certain abilities. And there's a stack of cards at the side of the board where you, you can purchase for some resources these cards that are generally better than your starter deck, right? So you're sort of upgrading your deck as you go through the game. That's sort of the the basic mechanics of the game, I think. Is there anything you would add to that? No, I, th- I think that's pretty good. I think one thing to sort of keep in mind is the bigger you make your deck, like your party of people, the more flexibility you have in terms of skills that you can draw on, but it's more costly every time you want to move. It's you sort of feel burdened by the number of goods that you carry with you. And so a lot of the game is about timing when you, you camp so that you you don't have too many people or too many resources at any given time. That's sort of the, the, the big challenge for the game is, is trying to play your cards right so that you end up camping at exactly the right time. Right, yes. I, I forgot to mention that when you acquire these like trade goods, so whether they're you know horses, some of them are trade goods, some of them are just ho- goods you can expend to move further. So like horses, food, furs, etc. The more of that you have, the slower you go when you try to move. So so you're trying to expend it before you move. Yeah. This game, Lewis and Clark, was released in 2013. And a very sort of cursory glance at the game and its manual reveals that it has some offensive ways of depicting indigenous people that are just sort of basic to the game, right? For example, the little indigenous people's like tokens, which are called meeples. Their pieces are red. They have feathers sticking out from their heads, and they're referred to as Indians throughout the manual. 
I'll also add, this was kind of uncomfortable. I played this in a board game cafe, and it was kind of uncomfortable to be playing this racist, you know, the game with these racist images in public. Uh, That was not a super comfortable experience. Without delving into the actual mechanics of the game, one would think that it would be fairly easy for a game developer to fix these at least very surface level artistic choices, right? Mm -hmm. But my sense is that by 2013, you would maybe think the developers would be rethinking some of this, but I think that doesn't seem to be true. I mean, games seem to be still being made fairly recently with these images. So why do you think developers continue to make board games that have these obvious problematic issues? Yeah, so I, I think there's a couple reasons. And I think, you know, one of the one of the things I like most about talking about this particular game is that it makes a lot of decisions right and it makes a handful wrong. And so you can sort of see, you know, it's rather than sort of defending this game, just sort of pointing out this is not the worst game. This is not even the top 10 or 15 or 50 worst board games since depictions of indigenous people. There's all sorts of ones that sexualize indigenous women that just have like absolutely racist caricatures all over the art still being published today. And I think to go back to your question, you know, why, why did these mistakes sort of remain in this particular game? Some of it depends on who the target audience is. Hmm. So there are two main markets for English board games or, or even just board games in general. There's two main sort of markets that create a lot of these games. One is in Europe and one is in North America. And I think you often see very different approaches to the depictions of indigenous people for games created, especially targeted for a German audience, Hmm. which is often a very sort of romantic wild west. There's often more sort of racist or offensive depictions in those games than ones that are targeted initially for a North American audience. So, you know, some some of the pieces that you see, you know, the little red meeple with a feather sticking up, Part of the reason that's problematic goes back to one of the early challenges with board games, which is it requires abstraction. And so Lewis and Clark's journey take them from, you know, right sort of along the sort of middle of the United States, East St. Louis kind of area, all the way to the Pacific coast, right? You're crossing dozens of different indigenous groups. And so this is one of the fundamental challenges is how do you represent that? And the game does it in one way that is, I think, quite decent and in one way that is not great. So indigenous people appear as those meeples, which, you know, that, that iconography doesn't match any of the groups who are on the West Coast, right? And then so the other way is the cards, which actually, this is one of the things I like about this game, is it depicts indigenous people by name in these decks of cards. That's very, very rare. It's, I think, one of the only games I can think of where indigenous people are not this abstracted group where every single one is the same. In this game, each one has, you know, you see old Toby who appears in the Lewis and Clark journals as a key guide. And in the game, old Toby is one of the most powerful ways to move through rivers and mountains. So you can sort of see connections between the history and the actual characters. So, yeah. So if I was going to change anything, those meeples would be absolutely exactly where I'd start. And those sort of feel like some of the other games that I've played that, that don't put nearly as much emphasis into the history. And that sort of feels like a decision that's more likely made by a European publisher than an American one. But yeah, I, I can see your I can see your anxiety sitting in a, a sort of public cafe, being like, "Oh, what am I doing?" <laughs> yes, yeah, that makes sense to me. That I, I was also thinking about the sort of European versus 
North American made board game. This game is made by a French developer and published by a French company. And I was thinking about this and I was like, you know, maybe maybe this is overly optimistic or naive of me, but I would have thought that like hypothetically, if a game like this was created in, you know, Western Canada, for example, in 2013, as opposed to France, you might expect some more sensitivity to these issues because of maybe a, maybe a greater sense of the, or greater awareness of the politics of these issues in a way that I think is maybe not as present for people in Europe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think even when you're talking about North American publishers, we're talking mostly East Coast, Yeah, right? Where that's that sort of feels like a distant piece. You know, I think one thing that I will give the game credit for is you know, especially those individual characters have little pieces of history that are next to them. Mm-hmm. And the history that they write next to each character is, is decent. And the part that I find most interesting and surprising, I guess, is that many of the depictions are not necessarily positive. So uh, Toussaint Charbonneau, the game notes that he's violent and cowardly. And if you look in the Lewis and Clark journals, they'll describe him as both a, a bungler and a wife beater. And so you can see that I'm I'm positive that the designers read the Lewis and Clark journals. They're sort of one-to-one depictions. So in some ways you're getting a problematic depiction, right? It's, you know, Lewis and Clark aren't exactly the bastion of, of, you know, forward thinking at the time necessarily, but over the course of their journeys, over the course of their journals, they do get more and more respect for indigenous people. And I think you see that reflected in some of the, some of the textual descriptions Hmm that appear in the game. And I think one of the things that is cool for thinking about this game as a learning experience is you're getting sort of an interactive way of delving into Lewis and Clark's journals and thoughts. So if they're problematic, that's a great chance to talk about, you know, why did Lewis and Clark think this way? You know, why is Charbonneau so maligned in the game? And it's a chance to talk about really all of these really interesting and complex questions potentially with audiences as young as 13, right? But like, I'm never going to get, you know, a 13 year old to sit down and, and, and blitz through the, you know, 15 volumes of Lewis and Clark journals and then have, you know, an interesting debate. Yeah. But by sort of condensing this into like a 90 to one hour and 20 minute experience, you can actually have these interesting conversations about who gets to leave records behind. You know, how are people depicted? Who is the most important part of this game? can the journey happen without indigenous people? And so I think, you know, for me, you know, going back to sort of my childhood, very few of the games that I played as a kid taught me a lot of great history. But what I think they offer is a chance to sort of explore options and to foster creativity and foster excitement. And so I remember, you know, after I'd finished playing, I'd be like, is that accurate? You know, and then I'd go and I'd read a history book or I'd read, you know, a, a sort of better source of history and sort of work through some of those challenges. And so, you know, I think one of the things a game can do is create that excitement and, and create questions from which you can find answers. And I think that's one of their, their greatest powers. I agree with that. Although I think one of the challenges is that for every person that will go and look something up afterward, <laughs> there are a lot of people who won't. And yeah, there, yeah. there might be a lot of, you know, teenagers who play a board game like this and just sort of come away from it. And that's the lesson, right? That they don't sort of explore it further. And so I I agree, you know, when I was playing this game, I did think to myself, this is an imperfect 
representation mm-hmm. of indigenous history, but it is quite a good representation of what Europeans or European Americans in the 19th century thought indigenous history was like or something or what the Lewis mm-hmm. and Clark expedition how they would have thought about indigenous people. Mm-hmm. And so in that sense that can be useful. I think the challenge is that the game doesn't really frame itself as such, right? It's it, that, that's mm-hmm. sort of a layer of reading that I think is going to be a tough ask for some people in the public. Mm-hmm. So I guess one of the ways that I think you can assess a game and one of the ways that I think is the most interesting about a game is when you're reading a book, all you have to do is read, right? Or when you're watching a movie, you watch the movie and you either know what the argument being made in the, in the movie or the book is, or you don't Mm. in a game, you can't just read the rules, right? The actual message or story of the game is embedded in the actual gameplay and choices you make. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that is interesting when you're looking at a game is how do you win, right? Because at the core of any game is sort of a win condition. And that structures the basic historical story. It tells you what you should do. So in this case, the goal of the Lewis and Clark expedition is to get to the Pacific coast. And that's, that's mirrored in this game. And then the question is, how do you do it? And this is where I think this game is better than most of the games I've seen. So in this game, if you want to get to the Pacific coast, there's basically no way to do it without indigenous people. Mm-hmm. You must have indigenous laborers in order to play your cards. There's a few different ways you can do it. Either a named laborer who appears as a card or one of those sort of crappy meeples. You must have them. You need them to build canoes. You need them to supply you with horses. You need them to help with hunting and you need them as sort of a basic source of labor in the game. And I think that's one of the things that I like about this game that surprised me that you see in almost no other games that feature indigenous people, that the game is sort of, this expedition cannot happen without cooperation, that indigenous people are the driving force in the game and much of your game, and this requires a level of reflection that I'm not sure all players necessarily do. Much of the game is you trying to convince indigenous people to help you. You're gathering them up, through trade items or you're often through trade items or furs, you're sort of paying something in exchange for their support. And it's, you know, it's obviously a little bit abstracted and a little bit goofy at times where, you know, indigenous people can't ever say no. Yeah, They just have a sort of an, an obvious cost that comes with them and, and all of that. But, you know, if I'm thinking of other historic games that do things well, you know, I'm thinking Freedom Underground Railway and other sort of games like that. I like the sort of core focus of this one better than a lot of the other ones because it's it's sort of hidden in the back but i think is sort of an unavoidable part of this game that could have been a lot worse right you can imagine just a, a horrible game where it's you know it's a, it's all about individualism it's all about you know things that that don't actually get reflected in the historic record right the lewis and clark expedition like it's hard it's hard crossing the rocky mountains and you don't they, they try it on their own and it's a total disaster and they come back down and they're like, that was a mistake. We were told not to go during these months. And we went during these months and we just, we almost died. Let's, let's maybe ask for help next time. And in the game, the mountains are the hardest part to get through. You just, you cannot get through the mountains without horses and especially a handful of indigenous guides in the game who really let you make that movement. So it's, it's interesting, you know, it's games I think are so fascinating to look at because there's so much ahistorical information in there, like the, the process of abstracting, you know, 
15 volumes of text into a 90 minute experience requires that you throw out all kinds of stuff. Right. And so I'm, I'm sort of so interested in what remains. And in this case, I think one of the big messages from this game is that you must cooperate. You, you can't do this on your own. Every card you play must require support. Right? This is ultimately a team activity that involves uh, recruiting indigenous people and, and using their skills to the best of your ability. I think that that is an important takeaway from the game. I wanted to ask you then about games that, including this one, that emphasize historical, a historical message or historical accuracy. So this is a game that presents itself as at least partly educational, mm -hmm. rooted in historical accuracy, right? As you mentioned in the manual, each of the cards is accompanied by a little blurb describing, you know, who that person was. The manual even has a brief, like a sort of one page narrative of the Lewis and Clark expedition mm -hmm. for people who are interested in that. And I've seen a variety of other games do this as well. This is certainly not unique. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of some of the, I think the, the 1775 and 1812 games mm -hmm. as well are, are quite similar in their presentation. What is your reaction to these games claiming historical accuracy like this? And I also wonder to myself, why do developers, why do, why do game publishers do this? What's the point when I imagine uh, only a pretty small proportion of players actually want to go through the manual and read like, mm -hmm. oh, who was so-and-so? Yeah, so, so this is a lot of really good, really interesting questions. So to start off, most, uh, there's different types of board games. Sometimes they're called Ameritrash games or Euro games, but they're focused around uh, really important distinction. So uh, Euro games are focused around the mechanics of the game. So sometimes it's called an engine or other things like that, but they sort of their abstract actions you take and it's like a puzzle. And so they're built around this puzzle. You know, can you optimize your actions in the fastest way in order to win? Mm -hmm. They often have very little luck. So the outcomes of what you do are, are quite known. And that's very different than American style games, sometimes disparagingly referred to as Ameritrash games where luck is one of the big things. So, you know, risk, for example, where you just, or access and allies, where you grab a, just a bucket of dice and you roll them. Those games tend to be more based around theme. They have a high luck, high amount of theme. European style games tend to be lower luck, lower theme and abstract more. And in recent years, those distinctions, I think have largely disappeared. You get games with large amounts of theme like this one that have relatively low amounts of luck. So in this game, the main amount of luck is the, the order of the cards that come out. But most of the actions you take are just, you, you get two resources and it's the interaction between players. Did you take this before I could take this? Did you pick up your cards so I couldn't benefit from them? You know, that's sort of what you're thinking about. So there's a fair amount of skill in a game like this. And that tells a, a very different history sometimes, right? Is this, is, is what you do determinate? Can you predict things, right? Chance is a really powerful tool that you can use for telling historical stories. And as you abstract different pieces, you're sort of picking what you think is most important to the story. So the 1775 series is really interesting because in that game, what matters to the success of your armies is their diversity, not the number of troops you have. Mm. So you want regular soldiers, not regular soldiers and indigenous soldiers. And that's the, sort of the most powerful army because it's flexible, right? So they're, they're embedding this argument that diversity of army, not necessarily the number of troops you can field, 
is what ultimately is more powerful. You know, having more troops obviously matters, but it's the diversity that distinguishes troops that win a battle or not. Freedom Underground Railway, which is another game that I mentioned, also built around, that one's the slave trade. That one's really interesting because the safest place in the game as an escaped slave is in the South. There's no slave catchers in the game for the most part in the American South, which is, you know, a historical in, in a lot of ways. But the game forces you always to be moving north just by the sort of base of the engine. And so you're sort of combining this a historical idea into something that sort of mimics an actual historical trend, which is, you know, trying to move up into the north and then later on up into Canada. And I think that's I, I think that's what one of the things that I like studying about these games is seeing how designers who have in many cases read about this history, you know, how they sort of fit. Um, and this does, this is quite different than a lot most of the games. So like you mentioned, this is a small subsection of games that actually take the time to read some of the history, to put together something at least thoughtful, even if problematic. But most games, the theme, especially the games I play, which come out of Europe mostly, the theme is the last thing they do. Like like honestly, when you know if if you design a game and you send it to a publisher, they're interested in the mechanics. And they'll play test it, play test it, play test it. And your game might have been about elephants. And they're like, you know, elephants aren't doing so well for us. It's going to now be about rocket ships, (laughs) you know? And I've talked to, I I did some um, conversations with a lot of publishers and, you know, for them, the mechanics are what matters. You know, it's different for some games, you know, some games, the mechanics and the theme are so integrated that you can't imagine a different game. But Lewis and Clark, you know, is, you know, it's fairly thematic, but you could imagine that this was a different journey. So instead of Lewis and Clark, this was a spaceship and you were stopping at different ports to collect, you know, different crew, right? You can abstract. That's a sort of weird thing about games is you can, you can just switch themes and you can mostly make them work. And there's only a handful of games that I think that's not possible with. So the theme and the idea that it's sort of based in history is in some sense a selling point for the game. Is that what you're saying? I think so. You know, I think, I think some of this is board games are not a place that you go to make money. You know, these are often passion projects. These are people who love the industry, who, you know, as a board game designer, there are only a handful of people in the world who do this as a full-time job. You know, a lot of the people who create these games are doing it sort of on the side as a hobby. A lot of them are, come out of backgrounds in math or other things, and they love playing games and they want to contribute something back. And you see this even more with the rise of Kickstarter and sort of the easier ways that you can now pitch games to the public. So I think some of the reason that you see games with this kind of focus is because people love history yeah. and they want to convey some of this to others, which I think is, is wonderful. Yeah, not, it doesn't always you know, work out perfectly, but you know, that sort of enthusiasm and desire to, to embed history in games is a really difficult challenge and one that I think, you know, even if a game falls short in some ways, you know, we should celebrate at least the, the successes they do have because it's it's a lot more than a lot of people do. So you see a lot of like ancient Egypt themes slapped onto games that have nothing to do with Egypt and have really problematic depictions. You see that with a lot of the indigenous games where, you know, absolutely zero effort was taken mm-hmm. and maybe even negative effort where it's a game that's like Euchre where it's just like a set collection game or something like that. Where they just slapped pictures of, of you know sexualized indigenous women and sort of racist indigenous men on the cards and called it a day, where you know clearly no effort went in. 
Yeah, I think in those cases, there are developers of games or publishers of games that are really preying upon the fact i think a lot of people choose the games they want to play based on whether or not the theme seems appealing to them right not they may not they may not know what the mechanics of the game are yet but they're like oh i'm interested in you know fantasy settings or i'm interested Mm -hmm. in space or i'm interested in history of the american west right and so Mm -hmm. then so game developers sometimes make choices about the theme that way and so historical accuracy is in itself sort of a a branding yeah, and, and the interesting thing is publishers make different decisions with each game. So a, a publisher might release a really thoughtful historic game about indigenous people and then like a fairly racist one, you know, three years apart. You know, some of these publishers and distributors have huge catalogs. Some of them don't, but they sort of take this on a, you know, I think the market is different. Like who they're aiming to hit hmm. can be quite different with these games. The historic games, for example, often are a little bit longer. Right, you know, creating an actual sort of historical world with some sort of complexity takes, you know, more rules. It takes a little bit more time. You know, the fastest is probably an hour that you could play a game like that. And some of them stretch into two hours, which is, you know, I love two hour games, but, you know, if you're trying to get, you know, a 10 year old to the table, you know, you're looking more for like a 30 minute game. Right. So they're, they tend to be aimed more at the later, the sort of older audiences and some of the sort of more problematic depictions. And this worries me a little bit because they're so much simpler are available at a much younger age. Hmm. Interesting. That makes sense. I hadn't thought about that. I want to ask you about the way the game depicts the Lewis and Clark expedition specifically and maybe how how this compares to how historians think about the Lewis and Clark expedition or other mm-hmm. explorers, not necessarily specific to Lewis and Clark. So the game offers a pretty positive and pretty celebratory interpretation of the Lewis and Clark expedition. It views them as brave adventurers in terra incognito, which is the term Mm -hmm. from the manual. Mm -hmm. It, as you mentioned, it suggests that their interactions with indigenous people were largely defined by cooperation and peaceful Mm -hmm. trade. How does this compare to the historical reality of the Lewis and Clark expedition? Yeah, so this is this is another good question. So in this particular case, I think it's closer to the reality than a lot of the other pieces. So, you know, Lewis and Clark could have just been executed by almost any of the groups that they came across, right? It's, you know, a few dozen people, you know, sort of in lands they don't know. In other regions, you know, if we're thinking Spanish America at this time, Indigenous guides will just lead these people on like loop-de-loops, you know, just waste their time, you know, put them through like the worst terrain that you could imagine, you know, oh, we have to go over this mountain, I'm sorry, (laughs) you know, or through this swamp, and then would lead them into their enemy's territory and sort of just leave them there. You know, we don't want to deal with these people. We'll just, you know, you want gold? Oh, yeah, it just so happens to be my enemy's territory, you know, go mess with them. That's not what Lewis and Clark encounter, interestingly enough. Some of this is... You know, I think Lewis and Clark, especially on their trip home, have have realized a number of lessons and have come to appreciate how important Indigenous people are to their success. There's a really interesting dissertation that just came out of the University of Saskatchewan that talks about Lewis and Clark's expedition and the transfer of geographic knowledge by Matthew Kunkel. And the sort of piece that Matthew is, is sort of making is Indigenous people supply an enormous amount of geographic knowledge to the Lewis and Clark expedition in all sorts of different ways. They'll draw maps on the ground. They'll draw maps on, 
items, you know, like sort of creating a map that you sort of recognize today, that they guide them, they provide oral knowledge. In almost every sort of success moment, Lewis and Clark rely on some sort of indigenous knowledge. And it's offered in exchange for trade goods or sometimes just out of being a good host. And this is one of the sort of hallmarks of a lot of indigenous communities is, is the desire to, to be a good host and to help people who are in need. And so Lewis and Clark come into an environment that they do find success, that there is very little violence. There's always the threat of violence. There's always you know a concern that things could go worse. But compared to a lot of other expeditions, this one is one that is defined, I think, more by cooperation than you'll see elsewhere. I think that's interesting that it is actually fairly accurate. But I also wonder, you know, if you make a game focused on the thing that is sort of more the exception to the norm, <laughs> you know, people might assume that mm-hmm. other explorers, their stories are close to this one when in fact, maybe they weren't. Yeah. And and you see the sort of romantic side. Yeah. Right. Like the, the terror incognito. You know, there's there's small changes that you could make on this game that would make it much much better. You know, drawing the boundaries of indigenous nations on the map. Yeah. Right. That this is you know part of that. You know, getting rid of the 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 meeple and changing into something else. You know, I think the game shows some of the difficulty, but I think it's I think it's it still feels like you're the one succeeding. You know, like it, it's it's Lewis and Clark through their hand management abilities and their you know playing their cards right at the right time succeeding against all odds. You know, I think that's what tends to be outplayed in this game. And well, I, I really sort of picked up on, you know, you can't win this game without indigenous support. I think it's like you mentioned earlier, possible that someone could play this game and not pick on pick up on what I think one of these sort of underlying messages can be. Yeah, I think that makes sense. I also think it does suggest that Lewis and Clark is sort of, or whoever your explorers are, if you may not technically be Lewis and Clark, but, <laughs> but your, your party expedition is really defining the terms of all of these relationships as it moves mm-hmm. through toward the Pacific. We see in the game that you essentially collect these, these meeples to work for you mm-hmm. during the game. I mean, the cards are different because you, you pay some resource for them and they're named and that sort of mm-hmm. thing with the meeples you're essentially acquiring indigenous workers for pretty much nothing yeah. and then yeah. putting them to work for you and they, they can't say no. And, it, <laughs> you know, I think that this is, um, this is sort of a common issue with worker placement games, right? Is because mm-hmm. a lot of, there are a lot of historical worker placement games. I think I've seen some set during the middle ages and things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it always suggests sort of the, the, the worker has no agency, Right. Yeah, which is sort of inherent to the way the game works most of the time. But that becomes sort of a problematic way of framing history, especially when it reinforces power dynamics of colonialism and racism. Yeah. And the other sort of piece of this is they're often at a God's eye view. Mm-hmm. You know, Lewis and Clark see very little of the landscape that's around them, right? They're, you know, they're, they're not sure that the next village they go to will actually be friendly. Right. You know, that's sort of one of the other problems with games is you often have perfect or near perfect information in a way that just doesn't happen. You know, there's no fog of war in most board games. Yeah. Yeah. You you see that sort of all over the place where, you know, games make these weird abstractions that change. And the same is true with Freedom Underground Railway, where you have this view of the whole American continent 
and you're moving your actors of the Underground Railway all over this continental board, which is not something that you know anyone has the power to do. So you, you have this sort of weird zoom out that's apparent in almost all of these games. And you're right, workers don't negotiate. Workers don't say no or don't refuse to work. You know, you can't insult the people that you've acquired in your party and have them leave you. You know, all of those sort of complexities are, are stripped from, from a game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you think that the way that people talk about, well, certainly it has. I, I shouldn't say, do you think? How has the ways that historians think and write about explorers like Lewis and Clark changed over time? Because I, I, I mean, I think this is maybe more obvious to historians that these interpretations have mm-hmm. changed quite a bit in recent decades. But I think members of the public listening to this may not be as aware of it. Mm-hmm. You know, when I was in school, I think grade six or seven, something like that, that would have been around 2006, 2007. I remember my school or my class, we did an explorer fair where mm-hmm. it was sort of like a science fair, but you were in partners and you would do a presentation about a particular explorer of North America. And I think that would be less likely to happen in 2022 than it was in, you know, 15 years ago. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the one of the trends that has changed is a desire to move away from these like just wholly celebratory accounts. You know, so if we're going to things that would be cool to see in a game like this one, you know, it would be wonderful to see that Lewis and Clark would make a lot of false promises. That part of the reason that they secure all of this. Uh, support is that they're promising that, you know, as soon as they get back, they're going to establish trade relations, which is a really appealing prospect to some of the groups that they're they're visiting. And that doesn't happen for a really long time for a lot of these groups. That's a promise that just isn't actually followed through with. You know, and so, you know, one of the sort of pieces is how does this happen that often gets lost? Like you said, you know, some of these old, you know, even today, Lewis and Clark is is this sort of patriotic moment of conquering wilderness and all of this, it feels a little bit less celebratory and patriotic where it's like, oh, I went to a village and they're like, yeah, I guess I'll take pity on you and I'll take you to the next one. The next one's like, oh, I I guess, (laughs) I guess we can supply you with some food, you know, where where it's, you know, it's, it's a number of people who are creating impositions on these communities and the communities being good hosts, you know, are saying, well, we don't turn visitors away or, okay, I'll spend, you know, a month of my life taking you across, you know, difficult and treacherous terrain because I want you to succeed because you've promised me that you'll send traders out. And that's something that, you know, long-term might be useful for my community, right? The, the motivation I think gets lost, the sort of reason why people contribute to these explorers mm. gets lost. And the end result is the explorers look like they're the ones with the agency. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who are making this incredible journey. And it is incredible until you realize why it happens. And then you're like, oh, just kind of a bad guest in a lot of cases. (laughs) And you also miss some of the amazing things that are happening. So one of the sort of famous stories of Lewis and Clark is, I think they're with the Nimipu and they're sort of, they they create a a blacksmith area and they're making axes and knives, which, you know, quite useful to the community. And anyways, they continue on their journey and they get to the Pacific coast and they realize that one of the axes they had made had already arrived all the way across the mountains into one of the places they're visiting. Wow. And they're like, oh shit, I, I've missed the fact that this entire region across the Rocky Mountains that we just struggled through, just, you know, we failed to get across them the first time and, we, you know, the second time was still miserable. 
that that these trade networks connect the continent all together. You know, and that's sort of this amazing story that you get, you know, in, in one line of the Lewis and Clark Journal. And it just sort of gives you a sense of the, the and you see this with archaeological records, that the Gulf of Mexico to the Pacific coast up into Saskatchewan, all of this is connected by this incredible trade network of people moving that, you know, long before you have cars and trains and other things, you have a continental wide trade system. And you catch a glimpse of that through people like Lewis and Clark. But that often gets pushed sort of the bottom, doesn't even make it into this game. And I think that's sort of one of the interesting pieces of looking at these explorers is they give you glimpses of this much larger world that the explorers don't really understand, but benefit from all the same. That's a really interesting example. I want to switch gears now and talk to you a bit about creating your own board game, which which mm-hmm. you have done. So you've you've designed your own historical board game called Policing the Sound, which you use as a teaching aid in the classroom. As I mentioned at the start, I've, mm-hmm. I've played it in your class. Policing the Sound is, you know, the theme of the game is around smuggling and border enforcement on the Pacific coast, sort of around present day British Columbia, Washington state, et cetera. Why did you decide to make a board game about this topic rather than teach it through another method? Yeah, this is, this is really simple. So when I'm creating a board game, I start with something I suck at. <laughs> and the idea is, if even if my game doesn't turn out great, it was something that I was already not very good at. So the, the challenge I had was, I had this really fascinating case study that I wanted to teach students about, which is in Puget Sound. So, you know, right on the BC Washington coast, where it's this area where the border is just being built. And it's an interesting region because the Rocky Mountains block that region off from other parts of North America, right? The, The Rockies are really a pain to get over. And on the other side, you have this ocean, which makes it really easy to cross north south, right? Historically, you know, oceans and rivers are the highways of travel. And so, you know, when you're building a border into this region, you have very weak connections to what is, you know, BC to what is now Canada and a very strong connection between BC and Washington. So if you're trying to build a border there, it's extra difficult and people smuggle and they smuggle like crazy. And so, one of the things that I was struggling with was conveying, I, I guess I'll call it historical empathy, but I was finding that students, when I talked about this topic, would simply sort of react like, oh, these people are just criminals. I would never do that. Hmm. And, you know, I could tell people that, you know, I could tell people the laws or why people did it, but that's not, a, that's not the same visceral feeling. It's not the same visceral response to say, oh, in that situation, I might have made similar choices. Hmm. Right. And I think that changes how you think about the history when you realize that, you know, these people aren't that much different than you. It's the system that has changed. And so one of, one of the things that games are good at is showing you and letting you interact with systems. You know, they, they're not really good at conveying precise facts. You know, like if, if you want to just memorize dates, you know, a game is a terrible way to do it. Trivia games, I don't find very fun. But giving you a complex system to interact with and make choices with was what I wanted to do. And so with that game, I grabbed a bunch of the archival material that I'd already gathered about what goods were crossing the border, where the customs agents were targeting, um, what communities were participating in this trade, and set about building a game that's pretty simple. So games for the classroom are a real challenge, and I have a lot of respect for people who do this better than me. But the game had to be explained in like five minutes. We had to play the game start to finish in like 30 minutes. 
so that we had time at the end to talk about the game. Because a lot of the learning happens when you talk about the game afterwards. Mm -hmm. And so that's a really tough window. The game has to be ultra simple. It has to be easy to explain. And it has to say at least one or two things that are that I was struggling to, to tell in a lecture. And so the way the game plays is each community has a hand of cards and they're going to play a card, some cards to either smuggle them or to bring them across the border legally. And then there's a customs inspector who searches one or two of the communities trying to catch smugglers. And the more goods that you find, the more the customs inspector makes. And the sort of core of the game is that at the end of a round, you don't tell people if you smuggled or not, but you do tell people how many points you got. And it becomes immediately obvious that people are smuggling. There's just, there's no possible way they could have without, could have gotten those scores without smuggling. And so the first round, in my experience, most of the time, you know, one or two people smuggle, you know, they're like, oh, you know, I'm not going to smuggle. I don't want to get caught. And then everyone's like, wait, I'm never going to win this game if I don't smuggle. And so the second round, everyone's smuggling. And the customs inspector, for their part, every community brings a different number of goods. And so Victoria and Bellingham and other sort of big communities are bringing five or six cards across the border. And so the customs inspector catches even one of those communities smuggling. It's just an astronomical amounts of points. And Colville and Metlahotla and some of these other communities are bringing one or two or three cards across the border. And so even if the customs inspector catches them, they're not getting a lot. And so very quickly, the game becomes a situation where the customs inspector is ignoring half or more of the communities, even though they're smuggling like crazy, they realize the customs inspector is never going to come to get them. And they might as well just do whatever they can as fast as they can. And the, the one, you know, the, the three or four communities who are big enough to attract the customs inspector's attention, they're the ones who are sort of living in perpetual fear that the customs inspector will show up and ruin their fun, mm-hmm. but still feel the need to smuggle. And so in, in the sort of, I don't know, five or seven years that we've played this game, one person, only one person decided not to smuggle the whole game. <laughs> and, there's no, and there's no requirement to smuggle. Like it's, yeah. it's not required. But I had sort of created a system where the benefits for smuggling are, based on historic records, very extreme and the punishments for smuggling are very low and the customs inspector they can't be everywhere and so they all but ignore indigenous communities which is roughly equivalent to what you see in the history and they just target these big communities where they they think they they can make sort of the bigger catches and so in some senses i i think it was a success it sort of fit the sort of initial piece that i wanted and the cool part about it was it then lets us talk about archival records which, you know, as a student, an undergraduate student, that's not the most thrilling topic mm. where you're like, what are the problems in the archives? But in this case, you have this core game, which is based on customs records. And then you can, you know, ask questions like how representative are customs records of the history that was likely happening, right? That's in some ways like basing your evaluation of the education system on students who fail, mm. Right. If you end up in the customs records, you suck at your job as a smuggler. Right. Yeah. You just straight suck. Right. You got caught. <laughs> right. So the question is, how many more people were smuggling who are invisible in the records? And then you can have all these really interesting conversations about how do you write history using a game as a sort of basis to talk about archival records, which are hard to talk about in sort of their their original form. Hmm. That's all really interesting. I really like your point about how games are really good at showing you the systems in which people 
interacted historically. I also really like the idea of asymmetrical games for talking about history. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. for people who maybe don't know, an asymmetrical game is a game where not everyone has the exact same role or the same abilities in a game. You maybe are playing different positions. You, you might have different strengths and weaknesses, etc. So chess is a symmetrical game where everybody's mm-hmm. doing the same thing. A game where somebody is the customs inspector and all these different communities are other players and they each have their own, they're each doing things slightly differently is an asymmetrical game. And I think that that's helpful because, you know, rarely in history, rarely is history symmetrical. Mm -hmm. That's not something that happens very much. And so asymmetrical games are an interesting way to explore the positions that specific people or groups of people would have found themselves in at different times in relation to one another. Yeah. And it also gives you a chance to ask questions about win conditions, mm-hmm. right? Because if, if everyone has a different role or a different set of abilities, you can also change how each community wins, which is one of the sort of follow-up questions to the policing the sound game I created, which is there are some communities with the initial win conditions who cannot win. You know, they, they, they don't bring enough cards across the border. I, you know, they're, they're all, you know, maybe you move between eighth place and sixth place, depending on how you play, but you're never going to win the game because it's based on aggregate money. But that's kind of a weird conception where you're comparing, you know, Victoria, large city with Metlahatla, which has a few hundred people. Yeah. And so, you know, what happens if you change the win condition, not to aggregate money, but to per capita money? Suddenly Metlahatla, which is bringing, you know, a smaller amount of goods across the border than Victoria, it's also located way away. Suddenly they're making out like bandits. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and, and how games, and this is going back to sort of the earlier bit about Lewis and Clark, you know, what you set as the win condition of a game structures everything else about it, mm-hmm. right? Everything's focused in on that win condition. And so being able to swap that win condition, suddenly a group that looks like it's not doing very well is actually doing, is actually potentially in a winning condition. And I think that's one of the reasons I like games for thinking about history is as historians, we're often writing, at least implicitly, with what people's win conditions are. You know, what is a successful government? What is a successful border creation process? Right? We wouldn't call them win conditions, but you know, if you're thinking about all these books, you know, they're often either critical of something because it doesn't meet a certain standard or not. And getting that that condition right, you know, thinking about is this a per capita story or is this an aggregate story? Is what scale do you look at when you're determining success? Right? Games are a really easy way to talk about those kinds of things because it's it's just part it's sort of baked into the nature of game design yeah i really like that do you have any advice for other educators who want to use games to teach history yeah i mean i think one is to start with what you suck at you know i think students are often very receptive to new ideas in the classroom as long as you say you know it's the first time i've ever tried this if it sucks let me know you know because i want to improve on this So, you know, like the other games that I've built were to teach citations, like teaching citations is one of my least favorite things in the world to do. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I built an escape room where you sort of, you go through different puzzles to learn about plagiarism or citations or bibliographies or how to write a thesis statement, like everything that I'm terrible at trying to convey. You know, I think you you can start with some of those, those difficult things that are complex or you don't, you don't think the original way that you're teaching is working. And I think keeping it simple and leaving time at the end to discuss. Like I said, the, the game, Policing the Sound, I think is, is okay on its own for teaching, 
But I think most of the actual learning happens when you can ask questions about the game, have students reflect on their experiences. And so I think that's been the, the biggest struggle for me as a teacher is sometimes I teach in three hour time slots and you have all this time to have a proper discussion. And sometimes I teach in 50 minute time slots and you have this sort of abbreviated challenge. And so I think that's one of the big challenges with games is unless you can dedicate multiple days, which bring into new logistical considerations, like, can you leave the game out on the table or is it going to get messed up by the next classroom? Mm. You know, that's one of the big challenges with, um, both digital and tabletop games is, is the timing window. So, you know, when you're starting out, I would keep something short so it can fit within a single class period that, that just removes a lot of the logistical barriers of playing. Overall, what do you think? I guess we've, we've talked about some of the big strengths of board games as a medium for teaching history. What do you think is the biggest drawback? Yeah, so I think it depends on if we're talking about computer games or tabletop games. Hmm. So computer games, I think their greatest strength is you remove the barrier of entry. You don't have to explain any or almost all of the rules in order for someone to play. Right, because the computer handles all the math behind the scenes. The computer, you make an action, the computer just tells you what happens. Yep. And you can sort of figure out by trial and error how to play. And so you can have these amazingly complex systems. You can have these beautifully constructed worlds. They can be, you could spend, you know, a hundred plus hours in in many of those games, re, you know, reading story and interacting with characters and you know, random events can really just straight surprise you. You know, I think that's their 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 benefit is you can get a depth of rules and depth of sort of complexity that are very difficult to mimic any other way. Hmm. The flip side is board games where in order to play every player, well, at least one player at the table, but often every player has to know the rules in their entirety, both for your strategy, but also just to make sure that, you know, no one's accidentally cheating or anything like that. And the upside of that is the games, every, nothing's hidden from you in the same way, you know, like a computer game, you know, I don't know exactly how, you know, a poison debuff interacts with a something, something debuff, right? Sure. But in a board game, you, you have to know how all of these things interact. Yeah. And I think that requires that the rules are both simplified and streamlined in a different way and that you internalize the rules. You're, you're sort of reflecting on the rules in a way that you wouldn't necessarily with a video game. I'm often not sitting there, you know, wondering what this calculation is or debating between two possibilities where I can do the math in my head. And so board games, I, I think because of the simplicity, the other piece of them is they're almost always social. Very few people play board games solo. You know, in a board game cafe, you're surrounded often by, you know, three or four people and you're laughing and you're negotiating. And that has both an advantage and a disadvantage. It can allow for this amazing kind of role playing. You can have pieces of negotiation that are historically relevant being baked into a game in a really cool way in a way that I think is often lost in computer games, which are more often done individually, or if you're doing a computer game with a group, it's often you know via online, maybe through voice chat, but maybe not. Tabletop games are just inherently social experiences. And I think that gives them an ability to reach mixed age groups better. You can have a parent, for example, helping a kid with the rules. So you can hit a lower age group than you would necessarily with a computer game. But also that social experience, I think, mimics a lot of historical environments much more closely than necessarily something like a computer game. Hmm. Yeah, I think 
one of the key challenges for using board games to teach history, as you alluded to, is that sort of complexity of the rules can sometimes be mm -hmm. very daunting to people. And this is especially a challenge for people who want to use them in a classroom setting. As you said, there's, mm -hmm. there's limitations on the sort of time and space you have to teach with them. Mm -hmm. But on the one hand, on the other hand, you want to build often to tell an interesting historical story with the game, you mm -hmm. want to build a pretty robust rule set. Yeah. When I was playing Lewis and Clark with the group I was playing it with, you know, that's a pretty, it's a pretty substantial rule book and it's, <laughs> it's a bit of a complicated game to learn. And there were a few points, yeah. you know, we're all adults who I think are like, have a pretty, we've like thoughtful people, but it took us a while to like parse mm -hmm. some of the rules. There were a couple of times where we're like, wait, how does this work exactly? And, uh, yeah, yeah. and so that, that's going to be tough if you have a, you know, a classroom of students. Yeah. And so, you know, for other educators, one of the ways that I got around this is using groups of students. So you alluded to one of the key pieces of this earlier when you were saying, for those of you who know board games, it's a deck builder and a worker placement game. And when I met one of my, my friends who I'm going to see in a, a couple hours uh, at a board game uh, meetup, I, I knew that we sort of got along because he sat down with a game called Lords of Waterdeep and said, this is a worker placement game. And that's basically all the rules you need to know, <laughs> that, right? And so like, if you knew the type of game, the genre, there's sort of an embedded set of rules that experienced players know that, you know, that would mean nothing if you don't play board games. It's, it's sort of a style of game. And this was sort of a quintessential game from that genre. But going back to an educational setting, you're going to get a mixed group of students, you know? And so when I played this game, Policing the Sound, it could play as little as eight people and as many as 50 people. And that was something that was important to me because I needed a game that could play in whatever classroom setting I was going to be in. And for the most part, I play between, I have a classes of between eight people and 50 people. And in the 50 person class, I was really concerned. I was like, logistically, that's a lot of people involved. You know, there's, there's a lot of challenges, but I actually found that it worked fairly well in a 50 person group because each team was about five people. And almost invariably, one of those five people knew something about games. Hmm. And so they actually helped the people around them. They brought some of their knowledge about just how games work and could actually resolve some of the rule disputes that might've come up and I would have had to deal with personally in a smaller group setting, but because we'd expanded it out and you had people coming in with those little bits of knowledge, they're like, oh, this is, this is a game similar. So Pleasing the Sound is based off Sheriff of Nottingham. I've played that game. I know the sort of general flow of how this kind of game works. And so they could help the people around them. And that was one of the surprises that I found was I thought having more people playing the game would be logistically more complicated. And it wasn't necessarily because of that sort of existing knowledge that was more likely to be present than in a game where it's one person playing on their own. Yeah, that makes sense. Benjamin, this has been really interesting. I've been, it's been really great to talk to you about board games and history. I really enjoy playing board games too. So this has been fun for me to, to talk to you about would you like to share any projects you're working on or or have recently released if you'd like to do so? I do know I'll mention that your book, A Line of Blood and Dirt, won many different prizes, uh, including the Canadian Historical Association's Best Book Prize. So people should definitely give that a read. Yeah. So uh, th thank you for the, the plug for my book. Right now, I, I seem to sort of fall deep into rabbit holes. Right now, I'm working on a project trying to digitize every single extradition case between the United States and Canada, which, as it turns out, is a lot. That does sound like a lot, yeah. <laughs> but I'm interested in how justice happens in areas that countries don't control. 
So the first book, and check it out if you're interested, is about how you build a border and how you build it across lands you don't control. And then the next project I'm working on is, you know, once you build this border, how do you punish people who live outside of it? So you've sort of circumscribed your own power and then decided, uh, maybe maybe I don't like that that much. I, I, you know, I want to bring this thief back. And so it's about kidnapping and it's about extradition and it's about trickery and all these other really interesting things that happen across international lines. That sounds really interesting. I hope I hope people will will check that out when you uh, inevitably publish that book. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Thanks as well, and have a wonderful day. That's it for today's interview. Thank you for listening, and a really big thank you to Benjamin for making the time to talk to me. If you'd like to learn more about historical board games, I've included some of Benjamin's publications on that topic in the description, as well as his book on the Canada-U.S. border. And if you'd like to see some images related to our conversation today, including some images of the Lewis and Clark game itself to see what we've been talking about, check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to support the podcast, it really helps me out if you share it with someone who you think would be interested. For a podcast of this size, personal recommendations make a huge difference for growing the audience as well as sharing it on social media. If you'd like to leave a review of the show on Apple Podcasts, that's also a big help. If you'd like to send me any comments about this or other episodes, leave one on one of our social media pages or send me an email at offcampushistory at gmail.com. I'm also happy to hear suggestions for future episode topics. And if you're a historian who's interested in being a guest on a future episode, feel free to write to me. Music for the podcast is by Paul B.S. and his Novelty Orchestra, and artwork for the podcast was made by Nethkaria. Thank you again for listening, and I hope you'll join us next time for some more off-campus history. <laughs> <laughs>